Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. If you've been listening to this show for a while, or if you follow me on social media, you probably know that I am a fan of the Disney theme parks. I go to Walt Disney World in Orlando with my family probably about twice a year now, I would say. That's that's a fair estimate. And I try to get to Disneyland maybe once every two years, not always with the family. Sometimes if I'm working out in L.A., I'll, uh, I'll swing over there at least for a couple hours and just sort of see what's new. But I love hanging out at the Disney theme parks. And part of why I enjoy them is the same reason most people enjoy them, I think, just the fun of a thrill ride or the excitement of being swept up in a story. But another thing that I really appreciate is the artistry that goes into making these themed environments feel very immersive feel very real and feel like you're being transported to another place or another world. And I see a lot of parallels to the work that Imagineers, the people that design the Disney parks do, and the work that filmmakers do. The way a building is designed, the color scheme that goes into it, whether there's aging that's done to it and things like that, the props that go into the space, all of that has a lot of parallels to filmmaking. And there's also a lot of work that Imagineers do that controls the perspective that you're looking at something. And that, to me, is the work that directors and good DPs do. So I see a lot of parallels with filmmaking. And for me, walking around Disneyland or the Magic Kingdom or Epcot, it's the same as sitting in a dark theater and watching a really well-crafted movie. So I love talking to Imagineers on this show. If you've been with me for a while, you know one of the earliest episodes of this show ever, I think it's the fourth episode, was with Eddie Sato, who is a former Imagineer. He designed Main Street in Disneyland Paris, among a number of projects. And today's guest, Tom K. Morris, worked uh, on Disneyland Paris, working on Fantasyland. He was in charge of, of the Fantasyland project at Disneyland Paris, called Euro Disney, when it was under construction. But Tom also was with the company for a long, long, long time and has some amazing stories about his work there. So I wanted to talk about his career and some of the highlights. One of the first kind of big projects that he worked on was the Imagination Pavilion at Epcot. It's anchored by a ride called Journey into Imagination. And that whole pavilion at the time it was built was sponsored by Kodak. And that ride has evolved over the years. I I guess maybe it's better to say it's changed (laughs) over the years. Uh, evolved sort of implies that it's it's gone in a better direction than it was in. And uh, they've made some changes to it that aren't really well received with fans. So we talk about that. And it was awesome that Tom was, was open to talking about sort of the changes that were made there. He also did some of the work on Splash Mountain at Disneyland, which if you've been following the news, Splash Mountain has been one of the most talked about rides this year, mostly because of the source material that that ride was based on. It was based on an old film from 1946 called Song of the South, which was a film with kind of a dual history. There were a lot of technical achievements in that film. It was one of the early films that combined animation and live action in a way that the Disney company sort of became famous for. It was a film with great music. It won the Academy Award for the song Zippity Doodah that we all know, I'm sure, and can can sing along to. But even when the film came out in 1946, there were concerns that it was a racist movie. It's the story of a young white boy who goes and visits his family's farm in the South and is befriended by an old black farmer 
And it's unclear exactly when this movie takes place, if this is a, a master-slave relationship or if this is just, you know, a freed slave that is now working on the farm as a paid laborer. That part's a little unclear. There's some racial stereotyping in the way some of the voices were done. So that movie, you may not have heard of it outside of the controversy from this year because Disney has never released it in the U.S. on home video, on DVD. It's not available on Disney+. Plus. It's a movie that, in a lot of ways, a Disney company has tried to erase or forget about, except for one glaring example, and that's the ride Splash Mountain, which is very prominent at both Disneyland and Walt Disney World, takes some of its characters and songs from this movie, Song of the South. So Disney announced uh, just about a month or two ago that they're going to be retheming Splash Mountain to The Princess and the Frog, the movie set in New Orleans about Princess Tiana. And when Disney announced this, they said this was something that had been in the works for a while. And I think it's a, it's a good call. Princess and the Frog is a great movie. It's got great music as well. I think it'll be a good replacement. But before Disney announced that, kind of during the George Floyd protests and all, people were calling Disney out for sort of having this ride based on this old property. So I've sort of always wondered, I mean, even going back 20, 25 years, sort of why there was this movie that was banned that I couldn't see as a kid, but there was this ride about it. So Tom worked on that ride doing some layouts and... I've always wondered, and I wasn't sure if he was the right person to ask or not, but I asked him, how did Splash Mountain come into being? How did the Song of the South connection work? And he was happy to talk about that, too. So that was pretty cool. We didn't talk about his work on Space Mountain, and I wish we had. He developed the synchronized music track to Space Mountain. So when you ride Space Mountain and there's music playing in your ears and the music works with every single turn and dip and it, it accentuates the feel of the ride. Tom invented that system and, and perfected it. So, you know, he's he's done a lot of cool projects. He also, as I mentioned, worked on Disneyland Paris. And he was the lead on Hong Kong Disneyland, overseeing the entire park. Which is interesting because that park opened at a time in 2005, I believe, of austerity, I think it's fair to say, at the Disney company. And he talks pretty openly about how it wasn't creatively what he hoped it would be. And that was pretty cool. And then his last kind of big project was in Disney's California Adventure, which is in Anaheim. It's the park across from, from Disneyland, the newer park there. And they built, I believe it opened in 2012, a section called Cars Land that was based on the Pixar movie Cars. And you're literally in the town of Radiator Springs. And there's a ride at the end of the street called Radiator Springs Racers where you get to take a, a car ride through the town and you end up racing through the desert at the end of it. It is one of my favorite rides in the world. And I'll tell you, my wife and I were out in LA the weekend that that ride opened. I think we were out there for the Emmy Awards and the grand opening of the ride was like Friday maybe. They had like a big media event if I'm remembering right. And then we were there, I believe on Sunday. And so it was like the third or fourth day this ride was open to the public and we waited about three hours to ride it, and it was awesome. And that ride just had such an impact on me. That world had such an impact on me. And it's pretty phenomenal sort of how they brought that to life. So Tom talks about all of that, too. But we start out this conversation talking about Tom's role as a Disney historian in the same way that I look up to guys like him and Eddie that designed the theme parks from my childhood. He looks up to the people 
that built the theme parks that he grew up with, primarily Disneyland in, in 1955. And he's in the process of, of researching and writing a book on those early days of Imagineering, which at the time wasn't a term. <laughs> there weren't Imagineers. There wasn't an Imagineering department. They were in a separate company called WED that Walt Disney had founded. WED is Walt's initials, Walter Elias Disney. So he's trying to figure out sort of who were these guys that built the original Disneyland? Where did they come from? What were their backgrounds? What were their influences? He's been working on that for uh, for about a year now, I think, at least, maybe longer. Yeah, I, I wish he was here to promote the book. I wish I could tell you the title and where to buy it, but it is still very much a work in progress. But he shared some fascinating stories from the history of that. So we'll start at the beginning with the history of Disneyland and work all the way through to uh, Disney's California Adventure. So here it is, my interview with Tom K. Morris. Let's just kind of start with talking about sort of the quarantine and the last, God, I guess it's been five months now. <laughs> like how uh, how yeah. has this period been treating you? Basically okay, because I started doing a book anyway. Yep. And so it was, you know, just kind of a good excuse to hunker down and focus a little bit more on the book. Although now, you know, of course, I don't have the ability to um, continue much research because most archival collections either at Disney or at libraries are, you know, not available right yeah, now. Right. I collected a lot of information prior to the pandemic and there's a lot to go through, you know, I've been going through it and, you know, there's, so there's a lot to kind of organize. Yeah. It's a good chance to kind of focus, I guess, yeah. right. Without a lot yeah, of other exactly. stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and start mocking the book up, which, you know, I've done, I've, I've, begun the mock-up process nice. so that's all good except it gets you know a little bit redundant after a while it's kind of just go back and forth between working on the book and working on my yard and then you know two or three times a week go out to get groceries and hardware and every now and then i go out for a drive and that's about it that's yeah. my life now <laughs> <laughs> it's the simplicity of it i guess right but exactly uh, yeah. yeah well i i do want to talk a lot about the book because i'm really interested in this and i feel like there's not always the direct connection made for people between sort of what imagineering does and the filmmaking process and obviously my audience is much more kind of in the filmmaker and you know th that sort of space um, but i talked to eddie sato in one of the early episodes of the show and we talked a lot about kind of production design and things like that and i'm just right. I, i'm always fascinated with kind of the period that that you're studying right now because a lot of the people that built Disneyland came from film backgrounds, right? Yeah, um, a, a great majority of them, much more than I realized. Really? You know, I, I, I knew that, you know, in the early days, you know, they had grabbed some people, set designers and things like that. Yeah. But I didn't realize to what degree and to what extent they uh, went out to get them. You know, there were there were many more Imagineers than I kind of imagined. And, uh, you know, a much greater percentage of them coming from from film. I, I know, like, I think of, you know, names like Mark Davis or something coming from the animation department at the studio. How many people were coming from Disney at that time and how many from elsewhere in Hollywood or elsewhere in the film industry? Well, if you look at the overall, you know, I've kind of created an overall, not really an org chart, just to look at how many people did it take to design and engineer Disneyland? Yeah. So if you if you go from the beginning in 1953 to the end of 55, which you can kind of say was the cutoff of finishing Disneyland. Yeah. It was over. It was about a you know a little over a hundred 
what you would call Imagineers and then outside consultants and people borrowed from the studio. And that's, you know, like another, maybe there's another hundred total uh, between engineers and consultants and fabricators, uh, manufacturers. This is not construction because that's a whole different thing. Very few of them were retained from the Walt Disney Studios. And so that was kind of the biggest eye opener was that, you know, Mark wasn't hired on until 1960, 1960 or 61. Oh, really? As as an Imagineer, he was borrowed briefly for a couple of weeks to work on the figurehead for the um, pirate boat in Fantasyland. Okay. But that was it. Claude was also, you could kind of consider him initially borrowed. Yeah. Although he was quickly hired on kind of, you know, as a more or less permanent Imagineer, but he w- he was borrowed to do the Toad Ride, to do the backgrounds and the sets for the Toad Ride. And at that time, this was a different division. I mean, it was a separate company, I guess, right? Like Walt kind of put up the money and, and WED was a separate enterprise from the studio entirely, right? Yes, it was. Um, it was on the studio lot, though. Okay. The reason WED was formed basically was to protect the Walt Disney investment you know to, to, to have an investment vehicle yeah. for walt because he was he previously had just been putting all of his earned money back into the studio and it was becoming less and less rewarding for him and you know he, he had less autonomy and at the same time he really wasn't making that much money so his family lawyer suggested that he like all the other moguls in hollywood begin to invest in you know, outside investments like oil wells and cattle and all sorts of really kind of weird things. And Walt didn't want to get into that. So he wanted to get into TV yeah, and um, and also do this little kitty land. And so that's why it was formed was to, to be another vehicle that he could make finally make a little bit more money and have retain the autonomy that he had. Before. And it was advantageous for Roy and for the studio, too, for a number of kind of, you know, um, detailed reasons. That's really why it was formed, because they could have just done TV programs. They could have done outside designing for other companies, which was one of the things that they were kind of tasked with. One of the things that it was imagined that they would be doing yeah we're going to design a park but we'll also design a park for you if you have a lot of money and you want a park design we'll design a park for you i haven't found it yet but apparently they were in the yellow pages as park designers wow without a portfolio at that point even right without a portfolio (laughs) wow that's wild here's another surprise it was really formed the the initial task was to create the zorro tv series not to create disney Yeah. Okay. And that's why Richard Irvine was hired. He was hired to work on Zorro. Same with Marvin Davis. So, so they knew that there there was also, you know, a Disneyland park that was also on the kind of on the docket, but the first order of business was to do Zorro. And they actually started purchasing props for it because there was no prop department at Disney and there was no set design department at Disney. There were no sets at Disney. Their live action unit was really small, right? It was, it was primarily animation at that point. Uh, All they had was animation and they were doing 20,000 leagues under the sea. And they had produced a few live action films, you know, outside of the studio, either in England or, you know, the nature series were on, on location. And so there was not, they didn't have an art department. 
They didn't have set designers, backlot designers. There was no backlot. So that's why they went to um, 20th Century Fox to get um, Richard Irvine because Fox, like other studios, were downsizing at the time. And um, so they hired Richard Irvine to be the art director, basically, for Zorro. And he hired Marvin Davis to be kind of his right-hand uh, man and design the sets. And when it came time to do a backlot, he would do the backlot. But in the, I think the thinking, uh, I'm not completely sure about this, but I think the thinking was the first few episodes would be a combination of shots on location uh, in various places and then an indoor set made. Yeah. And they went out and they started buying, they actually literally bought uh, props for it. Like there's a big double bed <laughs> that's in the show and, and they just went and purchased it. But what happened, I guess, I'm not an expert on Zorro, but I think what happened was that ABC and, and the other networks said, well, you have to do a pilot and we'll tell you, we'll get back to you and tell you if, you, if we want you to do the series. And yeah. Walt didn't want to take a chance uh, and spend a lot of money on a pilot and then be told you know, we're not interested. Right. So then he turned his focus on the little kitty park um, that was still, you know, thought of as going across the street. In, in Burbank, across from the studio. Line in Burbank. Time. Yeah, right. Yeah, across. And also there's some indication that they were thinking about doing it on the lot where the back lot would eventually have gone. Okay. It's about the same size. So that's really how it kind of got started unceremoniously. I, I'm really um, curious, just yeah. hearing like a 100 people on the design side that feels low to me and just sort of knowing right. your, your experience with you know opening yeah. disneyland paris or, or hong kong disneyland like how crazy is a staff that yeah. size to open a park that big it was amazing that they did it it was a different time and all of these so of the hundred the great majority of them are draftsmen on the boards drafting yep and they are all from motion picture studios that so far that I can decipher, I haven't discovered one. So, some of them, you know, are, are untraceable. I mean, you know, their, their history has uh, evaporated, <laughs> but most of them you can trace at least, you know, where they came from um, or how they, you know, onboarded. And so they came from not only 20th Century Fox, but a lot from Warner Brothers and MGM as well. Um, and there were, you know, draftsmen that would just hop around from studio to studio that had a reputation as being, you know, a good, solid draftsman. And so these guys were just work dogs. I mean, they they were they produced a lot of drawings quickly and they were good drawings. And, and these many of these guys, if not most or all, were good designers they had good design sense so they didn't need to be you know you didn't need to hover their sh over their shoulder to see if what they were <clears throat> drawing looked good or not because they seemed to um all have really basic classical architectural training yeah and that piece is interesting i guess just in thinking about sort of that uh, the crossover between sort of film and live entertainment right of like right if you had just hired an architect, a commercial architect or something, they might not have understand the thematic pieces of it. But to say, I want this to look like a 1900s, you know, small town Main Street, or I want this to look like the jungles of Africa, you know, right. a set designer is going to understand that, right? Back then, they really understood it because I guess they, you know, I'm guessing that most of these 
folks had worked on backlots or interior, you know, <clears throat> sets. And most films were generally thematic or many, many, you know, a great, uh, a very high percentage of films took place in Europe or in Africa or, you know, places around the world, the Middle East. Sure. So these guys just kind of innately knew without a lot of direction what to do. But that being said, uh, Marvin Davis did do, I would say, I think, you know, I, uh, I'm kind of discovering a little bit more every week, but it, it appears that Marvin Davis did do the bulk of the design work of Main Street, you know, okay. ju just kind of mapping it out, basically, yep. getting the basic forms and shapes of the buildings. And he had uh, help with a couple of, you know, uh, guys at his right hand. And that was done fairly early on. And little tweaks and changes were made, but it got pretty, you know, pinned down by the end of 54. Yeah, well, they had to build it then. <laughs> so Yeah, so they didn't actually start any of the final construction drawings that would result in what you see in the park as facades until the very end of 1954. And they really don't start in earnest until January of 55. And wow. that's for Main Street. Adventureland may have been you know, late January, I, I haven't really mapped out the timeline yet, but just from my observation, there's definitely no final design work before December. There's, it's all preliminary. Yeah. And uh, what's happening in basically in October and November of 54 is Wheeler and Gray, the outside um, structural engineering firm, they're doing all of the, you know, basic framing and structural and foundational design for those buildings and then you know based on marvin davis's drawings preliminary drawings and then in january basically they the uh, wed takes over and designs the facades so that's all pretty amazing the, the other thing i kind of discovered was that i didn't realize this and it makes perfect sense and it was maybe just you know kind of mentioned in passing in some book that i read during the depression 20 to 30 years before this architects Basically, you know, we're running out of jobs because people were not uh, building homes and buildings, but yeah. movies were still making movies. So a lot of architects became set designers for film. Hmm. So um, on the rosters, you know, at each of the studios, you'd have basic set designers, but you'd also have architects that were either doing a combination of set design or backlot work, you know, designing backlots and figuring out how the backlots would, you know, kind of work from an architectural standpoint yeah a lot of the set designers that wed had were actually licensed architects that's interesting i'm imagining that you know there were licensed they had licensed architects on the drafting boards and probably most of them were quite good at the design end of things but maybe some of them weren't as good at design than others and then vice versa you had really good set designers that were not architects right. and probably most of them were, you know, pretty good, but uh, there were also a lot of young kids that were young draftsmen that were brought on board too. And many of them become very interesting studies later. So it's a combination of old seasoned art department draftsmen who are at the end of their, towards the end of their careers working on this amusement park 
and brand new draftsmen, young draftsmen, probably aching to get into film. And they're working on this amusement park. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's, you know, just the, the you know, aching to get into film thing. I, I'm As you're talking about this, I'm just wondering sort of, as as Walt's pulling all these people from from different studios and things, and you mentioned like 20th Century had, had done a round of layoffs just before this, like, do you get the sense that this was a dream job for these guys or that they understood sort of, you know, this park would still be standing, you know, 65 years later? Or was this just, you know, I worked on Cleopatra last week and then I'm going to work on this Disney thing and then next week I'm going to do The King and I or, you know, something like yeah, that. I think it was mostly that. Uh-huh. I, I don't think there was much aspiration in terms of, oh, this thing might be around for a while. Right. I don't think anyone thought that it had particularly a good chance of being around for a while. Or I don't think if they thought it was a really kind of neat thing, I don't think they thought that it was something that was going to continue to grow. Right. I think they had in mind, oh, you know, you finish the job and then it's finished. Yeah. It's you open the finished. gates and people come in. Yeah. And, <laughs> that's, that, that. and that's it. Yeah. So, and so it's a wrap, you know, that project is wrapped. And so I don't think any of them had any idea, probably even including Richard Irvine, that this was going to be a thing that would go on. Right. And so I've talked to one person, interesting person who was there at the very beginning as a, as a young draftsman on the boards wanting to get into film. And he was retained after the park was finished as a keeper. You know, they kind of identified as soon as the park was open, who they wanted to keep and who they didn't. Yeah. So this guy was identified as a keeper and boy, they kept him and he, you know, kept, he worked on almost every project post opening until Wed moved to Glendale in 1961. And when I talked with him, he said, he kept thinking, when are they going to be finished with this amusement park? <laughs> I can't get, on to film right and he, he had actually already started to get into film because the wed drafting department was shared with the um, studio live action drafting department okay and so it was really kind of a melting pot of draftsmen it was mostly i would say mostly for disneyland because the films would require two or three months of some work and then disneyland always had stuff right. going on so um, some of these guys would go back and forth and some of them, you know, the, the whole payroll thing, you know, who's officially an Imagineer and who's not will probably never be determined because they would move it around. You, you might be on one payroll one week and another payroll another week. And some of it had to do it if you were union or if you were part of the art directors guild and yada, yada. So, yeah. so it's really kind of hard to draw a line, you know, a firm line. But I think I've identified those that mostly worked on Disneyland versus those that mostly or uniquely worked on film. Yeah. Well, this person I was talking to, his name is Dean Tavalares. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he you know, went on to join Coppola. First, uh, he worked with um, Arthur Penn, I think. He followed Bob Clatworthy out. Bob Clatworthy was a art director who had worked on Pollyanna and I think Parent Trap. <clears throat> some of the others and basically dean was his assistant and so cloutworthy left the studio to do bonnie and clyde or something some other big film and so dean went out with him and that was the last of dean at disney but his career of course went on you know be quite big but there were other guys in there that were in the exact same boat and they went on to you know become art directors in film 
and, yeah. and uh, notable art directors in film. I guess it's like, you know, when you hear about, you know, the people that were on the crew for a really amazing film or something, and, you know, they often don't even realize what they're making at the time. It's just sort of, you know, it's a day job and they're just, right. they're trying to get a paycheck and go on to the next thing and build the resume. And, you know, to, to think of, again, just sort of this park that's, that's endured and is this living, breathing thing versus, you know, a film that once it's made, it's up there and, you know, people still view films from, you know, a million years ago, but they right. they don't experience them in the same way and they're not as organic, I guess, but that's, it's, it's so yeah. interesting just to imagine, you know, these guys that were there at the ground floor, yeah. kind of what that was like. Um, right. I want to flash forward a little bit too, just sort of, you know, to your career in Imagineering and prior to actually joining the Imagineering team, you were working in the park in Disneyland, right? Right. At the time I joined Imagineering, I was a ride operator, uh -huh. attractions host in Tomorrowland. Oh, cool. What ride? Mostly the submarines and often the Autopia. Oh, cool. And sometimes a little bit of all the others. Yeah. Did you get to drive the submarines? Oh, yeah. That's awesome. You do the whole thing. You know, you, you <laughs> rotate from grouping to uh, loading to, you know, actually operating it. Yeah. So you do everything on it. And Space Mountain, I think, had just opened. So I was just starting to train on that when I was brought up to WED to work on Epcot. Very cool. I, I, I'm just really wondering, like, you know, I, I the first time I made it to Disneyland was in 2005. So, like, I don't know the parking lot. Like, I know it as, as the resort complex with two parks and, you know, all the hotels and all that. Like, just what was it like walking through the park in that era when you were working there? And this would have been like the mid-70s? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't think anyone had any idea, any inkling at that time of international parks other than you know it had been announced that they were going to build one in japan yeah um let alone second gates right so and and in fact the park was still closed on mondays and tuesdays wow even during the summer or is that just no like, in the winter? no okay. during the winter time yeah off hours gotcha so it, you know it just wasn't the big 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 thing you know the 70s were kind of a weird time and i don't think people thought of careers and Disneyland. Yeah. You know, it was kind of, that was kind of um, whimsical, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Or it was a high school job, right? It would be like working yeah, at McDonald's right. or something like that, right, I guess. Right. Yeah. Even though there were people that obviously had good careers there, just you didn't think of it as a, or generally people didn't think of it in that way at all. You know, yeah. um, I kind of thought of it, you know, but not so much Disneyland, but, you know, more in with the film and Imagineering or animation. Yeah. And and I've heard you talk about it before that WED was kind of recruiting people just because, as, as you say, they had announced Tokyo. They were starting to build Epcot. There was just sort of this need for, <laughs> for, for yeah. bodies at some point, right? Like they just needed right. hands to help out. It kind of, you know, um, happened suddenly because they did kind of sneakily about a year before they announced these projects, they began a program, you know, a career advancement and placement uh -huh. program where you could submit your resume and your portfolio, if it was, you know, creatively oriented, you could submit that and they would put it on file. And if any openings came up in the future, why, hey, you know, they'll first go to this file. Right. 
and very old fashioned, you know, <laughs> it's like a physical file. Yeah. But your physical, you know, I had to go out and have pictures, you know, taken of oh, my wow. uh, work that I had done and all of that. I'm yeah. like, well, is anyone ever going to open up this? Is anyone really going to open up this folder and go through it? But I, you know, I submitted my resume and my, and my por- portfolio, just, you know, who knows? So that was probably like around 1977, okay. 76 or 77. And then, you know, about a year, then they, you know, were beginning to talk about Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland, but it wasn't, you know, it was kind of like, Hey, we're going to do these projects, but it wasn't like, and we're going to need your help. And that began, I would say sometime around 78, I guess. And then in 1978, I got you know, basically a call or someone, I, I can't even remember how it came down to tell you the truth, yeah. but uh, I was talking to this headhunter. His name was Stan Soa and he, uh, you know, he was a Disneyland employee and he was one of two or three people that were tasked with basically onboarding people for not just Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland, but, you know, there were uh, roles at the studio and animation, but just like also things like human resources and payroll and accounting and those kinds of things, planning and scheduling, um, because they were like pulling some of those people from the studio over to WED. Right. And then they would need to backfill those jobs at the studio. <laughs> so they were hiring people everywhere in California, you know, for these LA jobs. Right. And they were calling it some of it cradle robbing if they were, you know, if they were grabbing you and you were still in college and you right. hadn't completed it. So I was one of those because I was only in my second year. So long story short, I, you know, accepted the position, which was, you know, a very a low position. It was a apprentice draftsman in the show set design department. And this was because of my portfolio that I had submitted and what they had seen was my drafting. And all of that was from high school. Oh, wow. The other stuff, which was writing and illustration and, you know, some film work, I guess. I don't know in what form I submitted, but they, they weren't interested in that. They were interested in the drafting. <laughs> they literally had a need that just yeah. like, OK, this guy, yeah. can, this guy can draft. Let's get him behind yeah. the table. That's, exactly. That's so cool. And and luckily they did. They, they put me in the show set design department versus the architecture department. Yeah. And in show set, you are more apt to be, you know, kind of doing a combination of design work and drafting than you are starting off in the architecture department. Yeah. So if you start off in architecture, you're doing details, you know, sections and blow ups and stuff of stuff that's already been kind of designed and determined. Mm, gotcha. And whereas in show set, someone might throw you a, you know, a design challenge uh, right away. We we weren't structurally designing anything. Uh, we were basically an, a supplement to the modeling effort. And sometimes we would provide a design to the model builders and vice versa. More often than not, it was the other way around. They, the uh, modelers would provide their set model to our department to be drawn up yeah sometimes it worked the other way around so i got one of those other way around jobs a couple times pretty early and that must have caught the attention of uh tony baxter who was just named the project leader for the imagination pavilion which had just been literally just been announced yeah right it was the last of the pavilions to 
come online. Yeah, it opened, what, a couple months after the park, right? The ride opened a couple months, but the rest of the pavilion opened with the park on okay. opening day. Gotcha. So that, yeah, Imageworks was there on opening day and the uh, uh, Magic Eye Theater with Magic Journeys and the little playground, not playground, but the garden out in front. Yeah. All of that was open on opening day. Gotcha. And so what were you, what were you working on with Tony for, for that attraction? He asked me, first of all, I was on the, on the basic, I guess, you know, call it core creative brainstorm group. Okay. That could just brainstorm ideas for what it could be. So they probably wanted some young twerp on it to, <laughs> to uh, you know, offer his ideas and opinions or whatever. And so I was happy to do that. But, you know, Rick Harper was also, I believe, part of that team. Michael Lloyd was part of that team. Bob Rogers uh, was on there. Um, and then, if not right away, shortly after, Tad Stones from the studio uh, from the animation group and Andy Gaskell, you know, we were borrowing from the feature animation team at the studio and let's see who else. Anyway, so it was, a you know, the, oh, Barry Braverman and Steve Kirk. And I would say, you know, Tony and Barry and, and Steve were, you know, probably kind of the key creative forces that were kind of molding the show, if you will. Yeah. And so I was asked to begin ride layout and layouts and also submit ideas. So I would sketch some idea up of what, the, you know, a dream port would be. Most of those have been lost, I guess. The uh, art library at Imagineering has a couple of them, but I remember doing several. And I remember they didn't seem to be impressing anybody, so I, I didn't think to keep them. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I was doing some of that. You know, I did a couple little show scene ideas but but the main thing was to lay out the pavilion. There was no architect, so there was no architect in this core group okay. yet, um, because they all the architects were assigned to the other pavilions. So I, having you know some sense of architectural design and layout, started to lay out the pavilion. At that time, it was a clear, you know, kind of four-part show or four-part experience with the ride, the image works, the movie, and this Imagination's Garden, which was a much larger thing at the time. And the idea was that the ride was going to let you out on the second level where image works was, yeah. and, which makes a lot of sense, right? right. And <laughs> um, so that's what I laid out. I, you know, I did several versions of that, and then it came time to get estimated, and it was over budget. So, you know, cuts had to be made. And one of the cuts was the, the little park gardens area was cut way down. And then the ride actually had two turntables. There was a, a prologue <laughs> turntable show, like how it actually ended up with. And then there was an epilogue show that wrapped wrapped it all up yeah. before you went out into the image works. And that had to be cut. And that led to the unload ending up back on the... Um, on the ground floor. So that's how we ended up with the layout that uh, that we weren't all as happy about. But yeah, I just wonder, kind of in that design process and sort of the the, the interaction between budget and art, <laughs> like right. how do you, how do you reconcile that? Because you don't really get a choice in the matter, right? They say you got to cut X amount from this project. Right. Like, right? It, it just it must it must 
pain you sometimes to see some compromises like that made, right? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, luckily I, it was an early lesson. It w- it seemed to be kind of the way all of the pavilions went, like, you know, give us your 120, 25% idea. Yeah. And then we will distill it down to, you know, what it needs to be. I think all of, all of the pavilions had gone through that. No one ever said, this is what the process was. <laughs> they just said, no. Right. You know, here's what Kodak wants. You know, here are the objectives and goals of Kodak. So go, you know, come right. up with something that was cool. And so we came up with something really cool and Kodak liked it. So then we started estimating it. It was just, you know, over budget. So gotcha. uh, we had to cut some stuff out. Yeah. It's just part of the process, I guess. I'm curious right. too, sort of a ride like that, that, has now been redone a couple of times. And I think it's fair to say it's not uh, not the biggest crowd pleaser in the park at this point in its current iteration. No. Like, How no. did they arrive at a place like that? Is it, is it just sort of lots of different bureaucracy? You know, a sponsor coming in and saying, I need this and saying, I don't this know. Budget to work you with know, the... I wasn't there. You know, by then I was on Disneyland Paris and I was probably in Europe more than I was in Glendale. So I didn't even really know what was going on. It was a different team. So I think it's a combination of of things. I think there is kind of a a propensity or a desire sometimes to overwrite something, you know, to like, okay, now we got to put our mark on it. And sometimes that goes overboard. I don't know. I don't know what drove that. Tony, I'm sure does. And he he may have had more involvement or he, he may have been able to see what was happening. He was not involved either. He was not part of that project, but it, but he may have kind of known what was going on a little bit more than I did. It right. was all kind of news to me. Yeah. And I was shocked when I went on it. <laughs> I think it was 1999. I was on a business trip coming back from Europe through Florida, went on it right after it opened. And I was like, what? Yeah. 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 That just, Unfortunately, it's something that happens sometimes. Yeah. And it could have been Kodak. You know, Kodak they may have had new management. They may have said, we just want, a, you know, a completely new thing. And maybe the design group salvaged as much of, of the old ideas they could. Yeah. Well, and I feel like some of that goes two ways, too, right? There are ideas that, that fans balk at at the beginning and say, you're ruining my childhood and how dare you do this. And then they ride the newer version and they say, oh, I actually kind of like that. That was an improvement. Right. And then there's right. times where they really are kind of ruining your childhood. You know, like, right. It's. I wonder, too, if you ever felt that sort of fan pressure or, you know, I guess when you were there, it was just kind of pre-internet, too. So there wasn't that right. kind of feedback chamber like there is Yeah, now. there was really no, you know, there, there was not an awareness so much um, that there was a fan base yeah. like that. And I don't think that was ever a factor into any of this. And... You know, even when things were changed drastically, you know, you heard a little bit via letters or City Hall, but yeah, right. <laughs> um, certainly not through something like the Internet. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's just interesting how all of that kind of evolves and everyone kind of has a different, slightly different um, level of uh, where the line in the sand is, I guess, in right. terms of uh, an evolution or a change. And I've always believed that attractions should be kind of constantly but slowly evolving so it's not exactly the same that you saw 20 years earlier but it hasn't all been thrown out right either <laughs> so there's you know some continuity um in it as long as the changes are for the better too yeah. by the way not just 
gratuitously for changes. Right. But um, like a Pirates sorry, of the Caribbean approach. Where, yeah. You know, putting uh, putting Jack Sparrow into it and saying, OK, well, kids yeah. nowadays, that's what they're growing up with. Or, you know, changing right. the auction scene or like the, the core right. of the attraction is still the same. But little exactly. vignettes are changing. I'm curious, exactly. too, sort of as, as we're talking about evolution, just this is something I've always wondered about. And I don't know if you're the right person to answer this. I know you did some work on Splash Mountain, but like right. that's sort of the big fan controversy right now, I guess, is this retheming right. to Princess and the Frog. Like, I've right. just always wondered sort of Song of the South within Disney. Like, you know, right. the ride opened in 1989 and the the movie had been in theaters in 1986 just a few years earlier and had done right. really well in theaters but there was also this decree around the same time that like this will never be on home video and then you know it was never on DVD it will never be on Disney plus just sort of like was there ever any sort of i don't know what what was the the sense of sort of that movie or how it could be treated in the parks was there any any direction either way from the top that you were aware of there was no direction from the top it, it was controversial only in that it was an old film. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, right away we made it very clear that this is a film about the music and about the three Brere characters. Yep. You know, it's about the places and it's about these three characters and it's about the music. And it was like, well, why would you pick an old film, you know, that's out of date, if you will? And it's like, well, what do we have knew that we can use yeah. at that time <laughs> not 19, much. Yeah, at that true. time there was absolutely nothing yeah and it also had you know really good music that was obviously still being used everywhere and the three uh Brer characters were still walkarounds in the park i would you know say from my standpoint it was the music that really um was driving it yeah. that that it would be really fun to be kind of you know going along and also the the context, I guess, the, the the geographic location we knew, the only real place we could put it practically was, you know, somewhere around New Orleans Square, Frontierland, their country. Yep. And so it made sense that it kind of take place, you know, if we were going to put it near Haunted Mansion, that it, you know, it had to have kind of a Southern accent, if you will. Yeah. So, you know, that was another element that was driving that at the time. And, you know, I'm sure we toyed briefly with the idea of a rescuers, you know, but there was, there just wasn't the interest, you know, by then that film was 10 years old right. and, you know, it did well, but it didn't, you know, it wasn't a, I guess, something you could consider a classic. Right. So that's what I remember about it was that, you know, we liked the music and we thought that a lot of fun situations could be derived from the three you know, from the fox, the bear, and the rabbit. Right. And there was also some scuttlebutt that America Sings might close. So those, you know, there were a lot of animals that seemed like they could uh, be compatible right. with that idea. And that's really what drove it. And I wasn't at the meeting where it was shown to Michael Eisner. I, I did the layout, you know, the preliminary, and well, it basically, you know, was built to it, the layout for it. Um, and the siding, I cited it, uh, where it's located next to the mansion. Yeah. Um, I was not in the meeting with Eisner on it, but uh, he really liked the idea. And, you know, if he liked the idea, then we were going to do it. Yeah. And um, so I don't remember any controversy. Uh, I know that they shortly after were shown to Michael Eisner, were shown to Michael Jackson, and he loved the idea. 
And then I moved on to some other projects not long after that, and then wasn't really too much involved. But my understanding was that they were working with the African-American community on just making sure that we didn't, you know, do anything that was weird on it or yeah. or culturally insensitive. Right. And so um, I don't know what group it was. Someone said it may have been an uh, NAACP, and that might be true. I don't know. Uh, and then, and then there, I think there was someone from the NAACP that worked with casting on the voice selections later. But that was all after I had um, gone on to other projects. Yeah, it's so interesting just sort of hearing some of that development and thinking about like, you know, we have this attraction that's going to close, and we have these extra animatronics that could fit in with this theme. So yeah, that that's a great way to save some money, and let's repurpose them. And then this ride ends up getting cloned two other times. You know, it's it's kind of what's yeah. happening with Frozen now that like Frozen was wedged into Epcot as like we need to retheme the Maelstrom, and now they're they're rebuilding that in Japan. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, like yeah. you, you solve the problem in front of you, and then it ends up being a hit. It ends up right. going on to other places, which is kind of funny. Yeah, um, yeah. I want to jump ahead just a little bit because I know you did a lot of work on Disneyland Paris, but I'm really curious about the work you did on Hong Kong, just because that feels like such an interesting project to kind of, it's almost a greatest hits park. Really, I was there in, in 2011, I, guess. I think it was the five year anniversary was still going on. And it's before like Grizzly Gulch or Mystic Manor or any of that. It was sort of still the original core of the park yeah. that had opened right but it's it's kind of a like a greatest hits of anaheim in a way right like just a, a, working with the parameters that you had from a budget standpoint from an attraction count standpoint like how did how did that park arrive at the place that it did on opening day well that was a much more long and winding road and there were people that were before me and my team on it and i didn't really have a lot of visibility into the kind of early, you know, days of that yeah. uh, project. So I kind of came in in the middle, I guess, of the design process when it was still a very, very small park. Like, I don't know if you could call it a Disneyland, but they were starting to call it Hong Kong Disneyland. Yeah. And it had had another name before that that kind of gave it permission to not be to not have all the things that a Disneyland would have. I can't remember what that name was, but it was something, you know, kind of generic, like Disney's magical little park. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. You're not <laughs> going so in with now, the expectation of Main Street and a castle and all that. It could be something else right. if it wanted to. Yeah. Right. So now it was being called Hong Kong Disneyland. And it's like, well, it doesn't have the basic elements that you need right. for that. So, um, Myself and John DeSantis, who was my kind of partner in crime on that project at that state, you know, we just started pushing and saying, you know, we need a space mountain and we need a river. We need a big river. You know, there was no like big water feature in the park. And Hong Kong, it's all about water. You know, right. it's banks have to have like a body of water. In <laughs> yeah, it's a whole feng shui thing, right? Exactly. And so here we had no big river or anything. We were right in the middle of that era of extreme austerity and why does it have to be themed? And, right. you know, this is the Studios Park see. in Paris and California Adventure. Yeah. And the, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so 
oh my God, but this is, you know, a castle park now. It may not have to have everything, but it's got to have some, it has to have bones of a magic kingdom and be able to grow into a magic kingdom. And so that was, you know, a good part of the battle for the first year or two on that project. And we'd have to go in and, you know, talk with Pressler about this and, and make a pitch for more money and more scope. And, and I think we did it twice and he, you know, he agreed with us um, both times that we went in. So we were able to get Space Mountain and we were able to get, they wanted to do Rock and Roller Coaster because it was mm. less expensive. Yeah. It's like, well, it's just a big box, right. you know? <laughs> so, you know, we have to create an environment first and foremost, that's, unique and unusual and something that people will want to leave their everyday ordinary life to go visit. And we can't just have big stucco boxes around, you know, with a sign that says Snow White or (laughs) whatever. It's, you know, there's more to it than that. Yeah. It feels like most of the rides that ended up there were clones from other parks. Did you feel the pressure to want to have something original at opening day? And like, how did that evolve. Yes, we did want to do something original. I don't know what eventually Hong Kong wanted that. Uh but at the time I think they were kind of in that safe zone of, you know, tried and true. Yeah. And you know, a discussion for another time is kind of this <laughs> what always happens now on inter- any international park of this kind of back and forth between you need something new or you need something classical but also that you need something that pays tribute to the indigenous place that you're at yeah totally and so you do that and then they go why would we do that that's where we are people don't want to see that they're used to that (laughs) and that you'll go through like six or seven undulations of that you know on a particular given project so you know there was a little bit of all of that kind of going on but uh the budget was really driving the drive to look at classics and redo them if possible uh, or as necessary but basically you know grab the ones that we know are crowd pleasers like Phil Hart Magic was at the time and there was kind of a you know there was kind of a looking down upon anything that was old you know that was older than you know that went back too far so right. like haunted mansion is kind of the classic you know haunted mansion uh, jungle Cruise, Pirates were kind of like, those are old hat you right. know, kinds of things. Now that was coming from management, not from people who are paying customers, guests. <laughs> yeah. It's it's funny too, just realizing that the duplication factor probably is very low. <laughs> like the people that have been to Anaheim or been to Orlando or Paris at that point, like I guess Tokyo's not that far, but like a lot of people in the Hong Kong market had probably never experienced a Disney park anyway. So there is right. a lot of latitude. Right. It's not like opening a park exactly. you know, 10 miles down the road and saying, Hey, we got right. this new thing. Yeah. Um, right. I, I've got one last thing that I want to ask you about just sort of transitioning from the time of, you know, cost controls to a time where, you know, it feels like there was almost a blank check and that's the work you did on cars land uh, at Disney's right. California adventure. Just sort of how, tell me about sort of how that project came into being and, and got developed. Again, I wasn't there at the very beginning of that. That was part of a look at how they could basically fix DCA, right. <laughs> California Adventure. And that and that was right after, I think, John Lasseter came on board and after Bob Iger succeeded Michael Eisner as CEO. So there was uh, some teams that were developed to look at different things for Cars Land. And I was still working on post-opening Hong Kong Disneyland um, editions. 
But sometime shortly after that, I was asked to join what had been now called Cars Land uh, team. The original pitch was at a, a California car culture area. This is prior well, to the now, Pixar IP coming on. This was just yes. a, yeah, just a Southern California. It was, so it would still kind of fit in the theme of California Adventure. Right. But, yeah. Right. It was something that Robert Coltrane and Kevin Rafferty had pitched, and it was really good, yeah. as a matter of fact. But with John Lasseter now being aboard on board as lead creative executive for Parks, uh, John felt it could take on a stronger Pixar. And it did have a Pixar element to it already, but he wanted to make it you know, fully um, based on the film, which had just come out. Yeah. So that's when I was brought on board and you know, basically just to kind of arrange the land and work on the menu you know, uh, for the land and then also focus on the, on the big e-ticket attraction. Which is phenomenal. Yeah. That's, I, I haven't, I'll, I'll put the one caveat that I haven't been to Galaxy's Edge yet, but uh, Radi- Radiator Springs Racers is, is my favorite <laughs> attraction like anywhere right now. I, I yeah. It's so much fun it's, and just so well done. Well, it had, you know, all the elements and, and some of them, you know, we had to kind of fight to keep. It's like a three-part drama, if you will. Yeah. So you needed that kind of, meandering pre-show to it if you will yeah lead into it with the music playing and the, going past the waterfall and all of that and then kind of the magical inside the building you know it's almost like a dream in a way you know it's like the ultimate dark ride yeah totally. inside and, and then the thrill element at the end of it so uh, i think that was what we were all you know pushing for and we knew that the thrill element was kind of the big visible, obvious draw, but that it had to have the other elements as well to make it a well-rounded experience. And, and I feel like the land around it, too, is just it, it's so cool that it's it's just built really to resemble the film. Like you really feel yeah. like you're stepping into yeah. it. And, I, you know, Harry Potter opened maybe a year or two before that. But prior to that, there wa- there wasn't a lot of, you know, it was you would have an attraction based on a film, but in kind of the context of a larger land. And this right. was one of the first kind of, you know, step into the movie type lands right. that opened. Yep. If not, the first, I don't know. It might've been the first that, that Disney's done. It was the first um, Disney probably. Yeah. I think Potter, yeah. Potter beat it by maybe a year or two uh, at Universal. Right. But, and it really was a challenge because, you know, we wanted to do that, but we also had to hide the real world that was, behind there and yeah. it was really one of the only ways that you could do that you had to build high <laughs> you right. had to build something big died the convention center and the, the power lines and all of that yeah and I, you know i worked on all the sight lines for that i worked with the model builders very carefully you know for the first several months on that job just getting it just right you know making sure we don't overbuild it so that it's because it could also become very oppressive right if it's too big you just you feel like it's looming over you right exactly and also in the summer it could get very very hot so early on we said we got to have trees in here we have to break the rule a little bit yeah and uh and lasseter agreed you know completely and in fact it really helped tell the story of the return to prosperity of the town of uh, Radiator Springs, you know, having suddenly everything's all kind of bright and shiny and working again, and there's some shade and some trees. It's not all set. <laughs> right. You know, that that was one of the little tweaks that you got to make. 
I talk a lot when I do these lectures, I guess you call them, <laughs> at places like USC and UCLA, that you have to know where to break the rules. Right. And you don't want to be breaking rules all the time, but you got to know when and where to break them. You have to do something like add trees, you know. So if the movie didn't have trees, you can't have a place at Disneyland that doesn't have trees. Yeah. Uh, not only for guest comfort, but trees really help make it seemed like where you're at is real. It right. tells you it's real and not just a kiddie land, yeah. you know? It's so uh, funny. I never kidding. noticed. Yeah. I, I never noticed the trees in Cars Land until you're telling me this. Like, I, yeah. I never even thought about it. But, like, yeah, the, it's brilliant. And they flower and they look beautiful at certain times of the year. Yeah, it just it adds a whole different element to it. But right. you're right. They're not in the movie. The movie's in the middle of the yeah. desert. Yeah. I mean, there's a few, but, you know, not very many. Yeah. It's certainly not a film that you think of trees, you right. know, uh, other than they go out on their little expedition, yeah. he and Sally, out into the you know national park. And that's all beautiful, of course. So, um, yeah, so it's just uh, an example of knowing where to break the rules. Yeah. Well, it's funny. We started this conversation talking about, you know, the early filmmakers and sort of the film language that, that they brought to Disneyland. And we're ending it like that to me is kind of it's a universal filmmaking rule, too. It's one of the first things right. I learned when I was, I don't know, 13 years old or something that like you have to know the rules and you have to understand how they work. And then when you break them, you have to do it very deliberately. And if you if you do it correctly, if you, if you sort of know the framework and you're breaking those rules very deliberately, the audience will go along with you. You know, you can't just break exactly. them arbitrarily, but right. Uh, or they won't even notice. Right. You know, they exactly. won't notice. And the ones that do notice are the ones that are interested in filmmaking and it becomes kind of a, you know, an exercise for them. So yeah, I, you know, I love breaking rules <laughs> <laughs> when, when you can pull it off, you know? All right. Tom K. Morris there. So many cool stories. I love that he was willing to, to answer just about anything and be really honest about his time at the company. I feel like a lot of, Kind of the Disney history ends up getting very corporatized and very sanitized. And, you know, Tom was, was willing to talk about the warts, which I loved. I thought that was so cool. If you haven't heard it yet, go check out my interview with Eddie Sato. I believe it's episode four of this show. It's very early in the feed. So go check that out. I think you'd like that as well. And if you're new to this show, if you're just coming in because of Tom or Eddie or, you know, the Imagineering Connection... My most recent episode just prior to this is really cool, too, if you're into Disney and, and that sort of stuff. I talked to uh, the president of television at the Jim Henson Company, Hallie Stanford, and Hallie has some amazing stories, much like Tom. She's been a longtime employee at Jim Henson, and so if you like The Muppets and uh, Fraggle Rock and Dark Crystal and want to hear stories about that, go check out my interview with Hallie Stanford as well. Or just subscribe, then you get all the shows in your feed. <laughs> <laughs> all the time new shows of quarantine creatives post every monday and thursday wherever you listen to your podcasts it's probably where you're listening right now and i'm at heath Rosella on twitter and instagram give me a follow over there and uh, i'll talk to you on monday have a great weekend everyone stay safe <laughs> <laughs>